Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech globally. This interview is led by me. Hi, I'm Michael, uh, one of the GPs of Climate Capital's Bio Fund. Today, I am interviewing Darko at Mali Bio. Full disclosure, Climate Capital is an investor in Mali Bio. Darko is the CEO and co-founder of Mali Bio, an award-winning food tech company pioneering the future of the honey industry that's both better for humans and better for bees. Darko spent a decade in the traditional honey industry, working as an executive of multiple honey companies in Serbia, Spain, and Norway. After realizing the damaging effects of his industry, Darko decided to take action and change the industry while giving bees a break. In 2019, Darko immigrated to the U.S. and met American scientist Dr. Aaron Schaller, and they co-founded Mali Bio. So, welcome, Darko. How you doing? Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, doing great. Uh, giving bees the break. I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, so you have lived all over the world, it sounds like. Where where did you grow up? Yeah, I was uh, born in Croatia, but I grew up and spent most of my life in uh, in Serbia. And now looking at the world in 2023 and seeing some of the things makes me not that excited about the world. But, you know, definitely, you know, there's optimism that, you know, we can unite the people in the common uh, challenge that we all have, which is how to preserve this planet and save it for the future generation. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were working in the traditional honey industry, uh, what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, it was uh, 2012. I -hmm. got off my business school and I got this offer to join one of the biggest honey companies in Eastern Europe as a management trainee. Uh, that was super exciting for me because uh, the, the the honey company was part of a bigger holding company, and it's one of the leaders in the agriculture and food sector in Southeast Europe. So as a young person who always loved food, uh, I felt that, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity, even though at that time, Michael, I didn't have a clue about the bees or the honey. <laughs> but, I, but I said yes with uh, a thought that I'm going to figure it out down the road. So tell us, what what did you learn about the bees? I mean, the, the bees, I feel like everyone listening will have seen a news article in the last 10 years about bees, but what do we need to know about bees? And what did you learn that might be surprising to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I think the, the first personal thing that I learned about bees working for a honey company was that I shouldn't be scared of bees, that, you know... You know, when people think about, oh, bees are scary, they're going to sting, yeah. <laughs> you know, learning that once a bee does that, the bee basically risks, uh, you know, their life. Um, so that was one of the first things. Um, the other thing that I learned is if you're approaching to a lot of bees, like don't have any deodorant or perfume. They, they don't like that. So if you okay. just approach them and don't have any of those on yourself, you're probably going to be fine. And yeah, don't make sudden moves. Don't wait with your hands trying to make a bee go away. Uh, but, you know, aside of those kind of personal stories uh, that, you know, helped me connect with the bees, I really started developing appreciation towards bees and the work that they're doing. And, um, 
you know, little, in the later parts of my uh, honey career on 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 the on the previous side before jumping into uh, something different, um, I, I learned that most people think about bees only through the lens of uh, one bee species. And that bee species is um, Apis mellifera, or European honeybee. Mm-hmm. And because of its popularity and, and, and just, you know, use in the commercial honey production, um, I learned that the world thinks of bees only as honeybees, but uh, there are actually 20,000 bee species out there, and honeybees are just one of them. So those are a couple of things that I learned about bees and I'm definitely fan uh, of bees for more than 10 years now. I also have a bee tattoo on my you oh, know, left nice. arm, you know, <laughs> so definitely, definitely big, big fan of those lovely creatures that, you know, our life on this planet wouldn't be possible without them. So can you help us to understand when we think about bees, how do they fit into the bigger climate story um, and what you know, do we risk when bees are at risk? And and what, what causes bees to be at risk? Essentially, you know, without the bees and without all the bee species, um, this plant wouldn't be the same place. The importance of the role of the bees is that bees pollinate plants and the diversity of plants and the amount of plants that we have equals planet's ability to naturally process CO2. Mm. And when I learned about that connection, I realized how important it is to do everything what we can have in many industries that are related to bees to make sure that we help them thrive on this planet because helping the bees is helping ourselves. Yeah. And one one fact that folks might not know, 75% at least in of North American plant species require an insect, mostly bees, uh, to move pollen from one plant to another in order to pollinate. So, yeah, <laughs> three three out of four plants uh, couldn't survive without without the bees. So, what what about the current state of the bee industry um, and the I guess the honey industry made you feel like it was unsustainable? I, I guess I think of people keeping bees and making honey as a positive so what 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 was concerning there that caused you to change tax what you just said uh, was the exact narrative that i was getting uh working for various honey companies and i worked uh, for traditional honey companies for almost a decade before uh jumping into you know the innovation train and you know working on updating the industry uh the narrative is oversimplified and false, and here's mm. and here's why and how. So basically, um, in the commercial honey production, uh, managed bees that are used are deployed across habitats, and whenever they're deployed, they conduct this invasive pollinator gentrification, mm. which is net negative for the planet because managed bees are good pollinators, but they are not as great as native bees or wild bees. So basically what's happening is we as humans figured out that we can use honeybees, managed bees as livestock. And we realized that, you know, honey is a growing industry 
it's an ingredient and a standalone product that people love. And by pursuing, you know, the production to meet the demand, we, you know, just started dumping more invasive species into habitats where they haven't been before. And that resulted in overcompetition, pushback, and tight over a limited resource. So basically, um, it's like having like a, you know, turf war between uh, pollinators and then giving one uh, pollinate one type of pollinators, so giving just them the nukes, mm. which in our case is you know quickly um, expanding number of managed bees in habitats to meet the demand for honey. So there are something in the order of 20,000 wild bee species, and we are wiping out all but the one that we like, their type of honey? Yeah. And, you know, it's... Got it. But but you know what? You know, I like to think about... I like to embrace the imperfection of the humankind Mm. um, because throughout the history, by doing wrong things, we've been taught lessons how to move forward. So, you know, as someone who is a bee enthusiast, as someone who also loves honey as a product, as someone who believes that evolution is never ending process, um, I don't, I don't tend to dwell too much on, you know, this downsides and especially my role in it, because my role was substantial. I grew many honey companies and I, Mm worked on deploying many managed bees into the habitat. What I like to focus on is that if there's a data point that is, you know, game changer, and in this case, it's the findings that uh, overuse of managed bees is not great for the planet, that we just know how to move forward from that. So from, from, from my perspective is, um, we're not here to preach as a company. We're here to recognize the data point. We're here to recognize the findings and offer a step forward that is different. Got it. And just for my own education, you know, that some of the B headlines that I read are about colony collapse syndrome. Is that something that is limited to the kind of human introduced European honeybee species outside of maybe their native habitat? Like, is that a problem that is solved through bee diversity in part? There are multiple approaches to uh, CCD, the colony collapse disorder. I think scientists can can still find a common ground on what actually causes the CCD. And if there's one thing that causes the CCD to happen, people are saying about multiple factors included climate change, weather conditions changing, overuse of pesticides, uh, varroa mites mm. uh, that attack managed bee colonies. Um, it's definitely something that is to, you know, to be fully determined. Uh, but in my case, when I look into the bees, it's um, – not challenging from the perspective of a loss of managed bee colonies, because, you know, just think about this. In theory, if the last person standing on Earth is a beekeeper and they have one beehive, you know, that person will be able to multiply 
that colony and create new hives. Uh, the biggest challenge that I find with CCD is when there's a colony of managed bees that get any kind of disease. And when that colony is being transported on an 18 wheeler, mm-hmm. you know, from Georgia to California, and when that uh, colony introduces something that it's kind of it caught that gets to be transferred on you know indigenous wild bees in some other place for me that is kind of a you know pandemic level spread of something that's not endemic uh, basically like a bee covid so yeah. that's that's yeah. one of the challenges that i think matter more than just kind of the loss of of the livestock that managed bees are got it so tell us about Melibio. Tell us about your solution. So Melibio is the world's first company to come up with a concept and develop science that helps us turn the same plants that bees would in nature visit and put a technology in place to process those plants and turn them into something that's as closest as possible to real honey Without the use of bees, um, you know, we like to say, you know, we're here to give bees the break. Love it. And, and you know, in the introduction that I shared for your background, we had this fun little line, you know, Darko immigrated to the U.S. and met American scientist <laughs> Dr. Schaller, and they co-founded Mali Bio. So that makes it sound easy. But I feel like finding a co-founder is often one of the most difficult parts of starting a company. So tell us about how how you connected and how you decided to work together. I'd like to share that, you know, having Aaron as a co-founder first and foremost um, has been transformative for me because I know so much about the industry. I know so much about the product, but I don't have a hard science background. Uh, my background is in economics. I went to business school. So meeting a co-founder who has hard science background coming from a grad school from UC Berkeley and also on the other side, having huge appreciation to plants. Um, my co-founder has one of the most beautiful, you know, gardens in Berkeley that he, you know, <laughs> that he keeps in great shape, uh, with great yields. That's the place where he got to see a lot of bees and ATBs coming. So, you know, it's, you know, having a co-founder feels like you're not alone in this game. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm definitely happy that we connected. That happened just kind of uh, by accident. I mean, I came to San Francisco to join, you know, to join the movement of um, building scientific companies that are taking animals out of the food production. I went to this meetup organized by the Good Food Institute, approached a bunch of people from UC Berkeley and basically told them, hey, I just came from Serbia. I want to build this innovative company and I'm looking for a scientific co-founder. And then Aaron, he asked me, okay, what do you want to make? And I said, I want to make honey without bees. And he was like, wow, that's crazy and hard. I was like, yeah, (laughs) that's why I came here across the pond um and then you know we started talking about it we we kind of business dated for a couple of weeks until we committed to each other started Melly bio bootstrapped it for almost you know six months before we raised the first check 
uh, and you know, um, the rest is kind of you know kind of known and and kind of linear. Uh, but that those kind of first months and 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 committing to each other and you know basically two strangers deciding to start a company. My first company in the U.S., Aaron's first company ever. Um, Aaron starting this with a guy who just showed up in, <laughs> in a new country. <laughs> so that's uh, that was really that was really fun. And I, I, w- with a lot of happiness, I do take time to remember those moments because companies grow. All of a sudden, you have twenty people on the team. All of a sudden, raising money isn't something that is as hard as raising your first check. And then, you know, reconnecting with those moments help you, you know, um, reconnect with the origin story, which I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. And what advice might you have for uh, a listener that's looking for a co-founder right now? Do you, are there any things that you kept in mind when you were trying to find the right person? You know, there, there are two kind of important components to finding a co-founder one is definitely rational you know where you get to ask each other questions where you you know have a conversation around expectations of you know how much how long will you commit this is this the only thing that you're doing there's there's that kind of rational piece that i think is really important and you know there's this kind of i don't know how to label this kind of you know, serendipity, destiny kind yeah, of thing yeah. where you basically, or, or kind of, you know, chemistry thing where you basically get to like to share the space with someone. And, and, and that turns into a conversation and then turns into a partnership. So I think, um, in our origin story, and I dare to speak on Aaron's behalf as well as my behalf right now, there's been equal kind of, need that has been fulfilled from both sides around having rational conversations, many questions asked around, um, you know, what are we looking into this business? What are the values that we're bringing in? As well as kind of also letting sometimes go and leaving the, the flow of kind of life navigating you into, into that partnership. Um, no partnership is you know set in stone with the first conversation or the, or, or the moment of the launch of the company as with any life or business partnership it has to evolve people do slightly change over time people do change with circumstances being changed so it's very hard Mm-hmm. To to have a crystal ball and be like, after you know three months, I think this is gonna be you know the best partnership forever. You know, being open minded and understanding that the world changes, circumstances changes, and and trusting that that person on the other side will have the best intentions to make the partnership work. Um, I, those are a couple of you know wisdoms from from our end. Yeah, uh, we're definitely. I think, and I want to conclude here, I think definitely the strong realization from Aaron and myself that the duo, two of us, is way stronger than any kind of opportunity for each and every one of us to go on our own. So, you know, the unity, the strength, the the one whole thing that we build as two co-founders is 
much stronger. And that kind of gives us also the ego benefit to say, you know what, I'm going to work with this guy because he makes me smarter as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And over the course of building Mali Bio, I'd love to hear some of the challenges that you all have faced and, and what you've learned from them or things that, you know, were, were difficult that you had to change your plan uh, to overcome. One of the things that we early discovered as a company being launched in April 2020 was that there are food tech companies that are a couple of years older than Malibio that at that time already got into these crazy rounds doing, you know, $100 million plus round, Mm -hmm. taking their total fundraising, some of them close to a billion dollars. So when we launched Malibio, even at that time, in early 2020, we started having a sense that some of the inflated rounds, some of the crazy you know, amounts of money being poured into startups, that's not going to last forever. So that was a good thing to kind of kick off our company's life that very early on made us make an important decision on the strategy side. And that decision for Bio was that as much as possible, as long as we can, we're going to remain a capital, um, capex, capex-free company. And that means that we're going to do everything we can with our science to make sure that we scale it with co-manufacturers, biomanufacturing facilities, and basically avoid raising gigantic rounds, diluting, um, raising expectations above the level of comfort that founders should have. Some sort of pressure has to always exist, but you know, there's a line that you cross that makes building day less fun. Mm-hmm. So we made that decision very early on that we need to be smart. And that decision was driven by my previous experience where I built two uh, facilities working for other companies. And I learned that building a facility, you know, looks nice when you have to cut the ribbon and, you know, invite <laughs> the mayor and take a photo and send to your parents. But other than that, it's, it's something that startups shouldn't be doing. So that was, that was an important decision that we made early on. And the other decision that we made is that we're going to make sure that we have a lot of conversations, you know, that we're going to engage people in the team and that we're going to question everything, including ourselves and our thoughts, and that that's the only way that is going to put us in a good mindset, leave us open to discover things, test and trial, and scale when we're certain that we have commitment on that what we've done is to be scalable. One of the most difficult parts of being an early stage startup no matter you know whether you're making software or honey is finding product market fit so did you all iterate your product in many different ways and was the customer you expected to kind of start with the customer that you've actually found traction with it's an amazing question which leads me into the origin story of our first <laughs> customer yeah i think many people at this point who have been following mali bio Um, have heard of us when a company without a product at that time commercializing world's first type of science for the industry that hasn't been disrupted for, you know, uh, hundreds of years 
announced that our first customer is a three Michelin star restaurant, 11 Madison Park, New York City. Mm -hmm. um, expecting and counting on that level of, you know, customer announcement as the first customer, we weren't able to have that in our wildest dreams. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's, 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 you know, again, one of these moments when I feel like, you know, everything perfectly aligned in a Melly bio flow. You know, we like to use the expression flow very often, referring to what, you know, a late Kobe was uh, uh, speaking about when he gets in the flow and when he sees that ball going mm -hmm. straight to the place where it should be. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> but people do send me some really good ones. So one day I got this podcast uh, by Rich Roll. Uh, he's like an endurance performance athlete. Mm -hmm. And he had this celebrity chef um, on the podcast. And the chef was speaking about COVID and how after COVID, the chef realized that chefs bear responsibility to remove animals from the supply chain. And that's why he decided to turn his 11 Madison Park uh, almost vegan. I was like, mm -hmm. what means almost vegan? And then in the podcast, he said, we believe as a restaurant, he was saying that all the food can be made directly from plants without using animals, except for honey. I was like, wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so Aaron and I, we booked a flight. We booked a dinner at this place and we brought them a sample, which was like two or three ounces sample. Yeah. That cost $300,000. So that was the wow. most expensive honey that was ever made. And, you know, I told Aaron, you know what, we're, we're heading there, we're bringing that jar, we're having a dinner, and we're going to talk to their team and see what happens. You know, that happened, they loved it, they tried the sample, they said, this is indistinguishable from B-Bank honey, and then, you know, we had like a due diligence process with them, and then mm -hmm. ended up having them as our first customer, which was a big statement to be made by a food tech company that you know um usually food tech companies make mvps that people try and like oh this is kind of okay but you can work yeah. on that yeah. we really wanted that bullseye you know the three michelin star level and when we achieved that we were you know we were just amazed has your go-to-market strategy then been focused on kind of high-end restaurants or how have you kind of ended up expanding from there heck no you know, if you take VC money, <laughs> if you take VC money and you think, oh, you know what, I'm going to sell to Michelin star restaurant, I think that they would potentially call you <laughs> with a bad word, which would be, are you Darko building a lifestyle business here? And yeah, we oh, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because th there are certain, you know, customers that you want them to feature your product. But you know from, from the start mm -hmm. that for this company to be successful, we have to replace majority of honey. And that usually comes with large business to business customers. So, um, you know, we absolutely serve restaurants. We absolutely serve more than one upscale restaurants. But immediately, you know, after that rollout, we started looking into large business to business deals. And one of them we closed with our biggest customer uh, which is based in europe which is a food company 
that uh, signed a multi-million dollar customer deal with us for, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of honey that we have to deliver to them in the next few years. Yeah, I think that the B2B route is absolutely, I think, the kind of path to scale. And one of the challenges I find that many kind of synthetic biology companies go through is reaching a commercial scale where a large B2B partnership makes sense can be quite hard. Uh, did you all have challenges as you figured out how to scale up from a $300,000 jar of honey to um, hopefully, you know, industrial scale? People don't speak about how manufacturing is really hard. You know, we know this famous clip where Elon was saying, oh, manufacturing is really hard. I think people don't have a clue how <laughs> manufacturing a physical product and manufacturing physical product that people ingest, putting their bodies is super hard. So any challenge that can arise will arise and multiple challenges will arise that you will not be able to foresee. You know, you hire these experts, you de- you conduct TEAs, technoeconomic analysis, feasibility studies and stuff like that. And then you still see things popping up. So, you know, it's hard. And you know why? You know what it makes super difficult is that if you just think about building it and you kind of neglect having commercial conversations from the get-go, you end up raising hundreds of millions of dollars and you build something and then you realize, but do do I have customers for that? Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, with the abundance of capital, you know, a couple of years ago, and with founding teams being made of purely technical folks that took this mindset, which is let's build it and they're going to come. I think that was the dreams. <laughs> yeah. I think that was one of the biggest challenges for the food tech industry. You know, today in 2023, you know, if you're doing a pre-seed or seed round, you immediately need to show uh, commercialization traction. Uh, otherwise, no one's going to invest in a science project that's just going to build something without understanding uh, how to commercialize that. So we were fortunate that my co-founder is a scientist and I'm not, that I come from the business development world. So we were having uh, commercial conversations before having prototypes to show, Mm. before Mm -hmm. having prototypes to share, to taste. And that is an important ethos in our company, you know, um, we speak about everyone in our company, including scientists, being able to close the deal. You know, our people at Melly Bio, they go to their favorite coffee shops or like restaurants, they bring a sample. And all of a sudden, I found out about these scientists closing, you know, closing deals. And like our sales manager is like, oh, I was introduced by our scientists. It's their favorite place. And we're now on the menu at that restaurant. So all right. that's, that, that's an ethos of Melly Bio. We, we can build stuff. We know how to scale. But, you know, we don't scale without knowing who's going to pay for that. Yeah. And so far, we've talked about, you know, business to business partnerships. But I know that you also have a consumer facing brand, Melody. I'd love to hear about the logic of doing kind of both of those at the same time. Um, and 
you know, before you get into it, just as a plug, the website is melodyfoods.com and you can pre-order uh, some of this plant-based honey if, uh, if you're so inclined. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the, for the honey plug. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, early on, we realized that as a company that's updating the industry, we're going to need to answer to a lot of questions from our, you know, business to business customers. You know, if I think about General Nels switching their honey nut Cheerio honey to, to our product or kind bars making bars with our honey, one of the questions that they have that are absolutely legit are, you know, you're a B2B company. How do you know how will customers react to honey made without bees? And after receiving feedback like that, we decided to invest some time, it's not equal time, into having some sort of, you know, D2C drops, tastings, to collect as many uh, feedback as possible from as many people that, that we can. So, Melibio is still and will be B2B first company, but we don't shy away from certain activations where we can directly talk to consumers, become smarter, and then when we get to talk to big uh, B2B customers, we really have some valuable data and insights to share with them around customer perception and adoption of a honey made without bees. Beautiful. I think that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, you know, I've been in a position even as an investor in food tech companies where it's like, the biggest thing I'd like to do is try this product. And it's always very difficult. Um, well, not always, but it's often very difficult to do that, especially for a company that, um, is focused on B2B sales and maybe doesn't have a consumer facing side at, at all. And so I can, I can absolutely empathize with potential customers feeling the same way. Most successful companies that end up having food as the final product. And I purposely said that because I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of ways to make food, but all of us using food tech or not using food tech, in the end, we en end up as a food, as a final product. So most successful companies um, that are, you know, leaders of their uh, industries within the food and the product categories are omni-channel. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as a startup, you can be omni-channel from the get-go, uh, spending a similar amount of time on multiple channels because it's just hard and expensive. But I wouldn't shy away from, you know, learning how various sectors and subsectors of, of your potential TAM can interact with your product. And that's what we're owning at Melibio. We don't run away from those conversations, but we're also powered by honey, which if you put it in a small jar, it's a consumer product if you put it in an IBC container it's an ingredient so <laughs> that's also the luxury that we have with uh, being yeah. a honey company yeah definitely and and to switch gears a little bit you know what have you found that the external world sees as controversial about what you do you know are there people that that are at all opposed to the work that you're doing and if so where does that come from i've learned pretty soon that we trigger a lot of people, you know, mm. when we say plant-based honey, 
you know, people instantly, you can see how, you know, they're switch flipped. They look at you with this mad and upset eyes and they're like, isn't all honey plant-based for God's sake. (laughs) And then, you know, just learning how, you know, a big part of, you know, population gets offended with innovation, um, doesn't understand why the heck are you doing it? But aren't you taking the job from the bees? I, I think my favorite <laughs> comments come on TikTok, where I think, you know, it's just kind of, you know, it's just kind of special. And people are like, but if you're processing those plants for bees, does that mean that they're not going to have their food for them? Like, for God's sake, it's not how it works. So there's, you know, education is very hard. Mm-hmm. And as a founder, I believe that being a VC-backed company, we don't have enough time to educate the world because it takes more than 10 years to educate the world. But what we can do is speak to, you know, the performance of our products, how it's better. I give them an opportunity to taste and basically tell our story and leave it there because we can't be convincing people. We can't be making people, we can't be pulling um, making them pull their, put their hands in their pockets and pull out the credit cards and swipe. Um, but what we can do, we can offer them an opportunity to taste. We can share our narrative and we can iterate in that narrative to figure out which is the one that creates the best, uh, the best conversion. So it's learning by doing. And I'm really trying to meet people where they are, not to be preachy founder. And realize that we cannot educate every single person by having a one-on-one conversation. That we have to be able to tell tell the story. Um, as a company, we've learned that video materials work really nicely. So you know, when you go to you know our company website, you can find this video. It's like three minutes video speaking about why we exist as a company and what's the underlying problem with the bees and the environment and the climate. So you know. Um, biggest bet that I'm making on myself and the team doing this is that we're going to figure out what's the narrative and what's the approach that makes people switch easily and not trigger them in a way where they kind of require to be educated because there's just not enough time and resource to educate everyone in a one-on-one. Yeah. Is there any particular angle that you're finding so far is the best way to convert when i talk about beekeeping which we're against i've learned that people tend to connect better when i tell them that our competition is not you know a grandpa beekeeper that they have in their town that's selling that honey next to the road or at farmer's market mm-hmm. that we solely as a company exist to take that mainstream large-scale unsustainable beekeeping operations and replace them with efficient and sustainable science um, for certain reason people love the sentiment and emotions around farm farmer and 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 that's kind of deeply rooted in us probably because many of us have early memories of you mm-hmm. know being mm-hmm. running around the farm and stuff like that. So I, I've learned that when we set the grounds, kind of when we set the stage straight, which is, hey, you know what? I don't mind you buying that artisanal honey that you do from time to time in the farmer's market from that beekeeper that you've known for 10 years now. But you know what? 
this is a $15 billion industry in the making. And those, you know, organic beekeepers are not going to feed the world. We need science to do that. Then I think people in there thinking around it, they, they can kind of, it clicks nicely with uh, how they process that information versus us maybe from the get-go going like with whole heart really against beekeeping in total. So um, that, that was one of the switches that, that, that we made because again, as a founder, I really want to understand what, you know, activates people in a good way um, because, you know, this is a company and this is a product and we want to grow and we don't want to feel like, you know, we're another preachers because people have enough of their own problems and, People love a solution that's easy, uh, that they can easily switch to versus, you know, a long lesson. Yeah. No, I, I think that's very elegant. Um, well, as we reach the end of the episode, you know, is there any piece of advice that you were given as you were starting out as a founder that, that you feel like really was formative for you that you're willing to, to share with people? One important advice, a piece of advice I was getting from a couple of people was that as the company scales, things become way harder. But what's important to to tell to people, because, you know, it's just not natural for a human mind to process that they're going to start something and every day is going to be harder until it becomes a big success. One important element to that advice is that Whatever you're working on, it's just going to become harder and harder every single day. But you know what? (laughs) You're going to be more experienced, and there's a great chance that you're going to have more support systems as a founder to help you internalize, compartmentalize, and process the hardship so that maybe it doesn't look like as hard as just starting from nothing. Great. Well, is there anything that we or our audience can do to support you? Read about bees, um, check out Melly Bio, check out Melody, our website. Don't cut your uh, lawn too perfectly. Bees like it, a little bit messy. Get a bee hotel for native bees. It's like a wooden thing that, that you can put in your homes that can help bees. And when you consider um, buying honey, choose uh, products that are not made by managed bees. If we want to, go out and try your honey. Um, did 11th Madison end up being a, a customer that's currently using it or is that still in the pipeline? Are there places where people can go and, and your honey is being carried in stores or at a restaurant? We're available nationwide in food service. Over 20 restaurants from California to Texas and New York serve uh, Melody. You can find it on melodyfoods.com. You can also purchase in retail a couple of CPG products that are made with Melody. And again, you can look at that on our website and you can always place a direct-to-consumer order to our website. And we're excited to have you try it. And let us know what you think. Feel free to reach out. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you to everyone for listening to my conversation with Darko about their journey with Melly Bio. If you'd like to learn more about Melly Bio or the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out their website. It's mellybio.com. That's just with one L. So M E 
L-I-B-I-O. And our website is climatecapital.co. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.